And let us see Christ today in John chapter 18. Please turn with me there. John chapter 18, as we continue to focus on our Lord together. As you uh, turn there, a commendation to our church family. Uh, thank you for um, your participation last Sunday night in our communion meal together for those of you who are able to make it. It was such a beautiful expression of what we were talking about in 1 Corinthians 11 that morning. It's just to see it in action, to see people seeking out one another at different tables, sitting with people that they didn't know, keeping conversations focused around Christ, and all of that being displayed beautifully in those signs of the broken bread and the poured out juice. It was wonderful, and I wanted to thank you um, for making the effort to come. We'll do another in just a couple months. But now we are going to focus on Christ, not in His sign, but in His Scriptures. We pick up where we left off in our study of the Gospel of John. We've entitled this series, Seeing and Savoring the Son of God. And for probably three to four months now, we've been in some pretty heavily didactic, teaching-oriented material. But today, we get back to the narrative, the story. So let's pick up where we left off. John chapter 18. I'll read verses 1 through 14. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. If you were to look at the top of your 
your chapter in your Bible, there should be a title there. Maybe yours reads, Betrayal and Arrest of Jesus, or maybe it reads, The Arrest of Jesus. Uh, These things are pretty helpful. They're not inspired by any means. It's just the editor's best attempt to help us summarize the material. And I certainly think that um, they did a pretty good job on this one. The Arrest of Jesus. It, It captures it pretty well. But, it is missing a certain degree of, uh, of nuance, of specificity that I think could turn this passage either into a tragedy or a triumph, depending on how you choose to interpret it. The arrest of Jesus as a title is just simply like a nominal phrase. It's, it's a noun. There's no verbs But if we were to turn this section into a verb, an action, arrest would be the operative word. And the the question to ask is, uh, what voice do we use? You remember that from back in grammar? There's active voice and there's passive voice. Like active voice is when the subject is doing the action. I hit the ball. Passive is when the subject is receiving the action. I was hit by the ball. (laughs) Jesus here, what voice is is, is happening? Is, is Is he being arrested? Passive voice? Like something's happening to him? He's not arresting. He's not actually putting anybody in handcuffs. Which, this is where things get interesting. Did you know that in other languages, there's three voices, not just two? In English, all we have is active and passive. In Greek, there's actually a third. It's called the middle voice. The middle voice is when the subject acts in interest of itself. So, you want an example? I made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Now, I, if I were to like, if I put that in the middle voice, the way it would literally be rendered is I made for myself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, or I made by myself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. The middle voice emphasizes my involvement or interest in the action. Hang with me. Jesus here, if we were to say this is about arrest, (laughs) is this the active voice? No, he's not arresting. Is it the passive voice? Is he being arrested? Or is it the middle voice? He's arresting for himself or by himself. The way you read the story is the difference between the greatest tragedy or the greatest triumph. Think about it for a moment. If it's merely passive, like Jesus is being arrested, we have to throw our hat in the ring with somebody like H.G. Wells. You know, the popular fiction author from the early part of the 20th century. Wells was not uh, by any means a fan of Christianity, and he actually tried to describe the whole Christian enterprise as like a stage production. 
He said it was produced and managed by God, and and here's how he goes on to describe it. As the curtain rises, the set is perfect. A treat to every eye. The characters are resplendent. Everything goes well until the leading man steps on the hem of the leading lady's gown, causing her to trip over a chair, which knocks over a lamp, which pushes a table into a wall, which in turn knocks over the scenery, which brings everything down on the heads of the actors. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, God is running around, shouting orders, pulling strings, trying desperately to restore order from chaos, but alas, He is unable to do so. Poor God. I could see where Wells could come up with an interpretation like this. This is where the famous New Testament liberal Jewish scholar Albert Schweitzer said, Jesus threw himself on the wheel of history and was crushed by it. And Schweitzer would actually say that, that that's a good thing. Like, what a beautiful example of love. Like, here was, here was somebody who meant really well, and they gave their whole life to a cause, and they did their best, and they were willing to die for what they believed in. Thus, leading this text to be the ultimate tragedy. Like, we read this today, and we walk out of here just saying, poor Jesus. Or... It's not a tragedy at all. Maybe it's actually a triumph. Now, I I want you, I want you to be able to discern. I know what you want the answer to be, but here's the deal. See if the text allows it to be that. The arrest of Jesus. A tragedy or a triumph? We're going to work through it together. Man, and I want to point out four foci. The plural of focus. <laughs> foci. There's four different points in the story that I want you to zero in on to assess whether this is the ultimate tragedy or triumph. Now, I'll tell you those ahead of time because um, I said there were four. And if I'm not clear on this and you only hear three, you're going to be curious about what the fourth one was. So let me just go and get it out of the way. Setting, I want you to notice the setting. That's going to be in verses 1 to 2. The second thing that you're going to need to focus in on to see whether this was a tragedy or a triumph is the statement in verses 3 through 6. Setting, statement... The next one is strategy in verses 7 through 9. Strategy. And then the last one is steadfastness. Steadfastness. And that's in verses 10 through 14. So, here's the deal. John has been telling us a uh, a story from the very beginning. This uh, This book is written to... Produce belief in the Son of God. 
In the first half of the book, we had what many scholars call the book of signs. You got all these signs that Jesus is the, the guy he says he is. He's, he's powerful. He does all these amazing miracles. What's interesting is that the last half of the book is some call it the book of glory or the book of the signs. So there's all these signs, these little miracles, but the big one is his death and resurrection. So the back half it like is nothing but about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Man, I, I was looking at my calendar the other day. We've been talking about this for close to a year in John. Obviously, he thinks it's very important. So beginning around chapters uh, 12 and 13, Jesus just seems to be zeroed in on his death. And he, uh, he teaches them about it. Remember, that's chapters 14 through 16, the upper room discourse. What's that whole thing about? I'm going to die. I'm going to depart. Here's what you guys need to do in my absence. He not only teaches them about it, but remember the next thing he does? We spent several weeks here. He prays for them about it. Intercession. Instruction. Intercession. It's been all about, here's, get ready. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And now, the text tells us in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples. It's go time. There's, there's, there's been a lot of talking. Now there's going to be some action. Jesus has prepared them. He steps out onto the stage, if you will. It is time for him to play the final act of the drama of his redemptive life. And he gets things moving. And what I want you to note first is the setting, the place that he decides to start the show. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, note the verb, he went out. Where was he? Well, some people think he was in the upper room. Some people think that he was in, he'd already left the upper room, but he was in the courtyard and he was about to leave. The point is, Jesus has been within the city limits of Jerusalem. And that was really important because he had to be there by law. Remember the great feast that was going on? Passover was about to happen. The rules were that you had to actually stay in the city limits. And so the city limits at that time would have been expanded a little bit. So as long as you were in the Jerusalem metro area, you were still considered legally participating in the Passover. But Jesus here, he actually leaves the protection of the city and heads out to an isolated place. Think about that for a second. Just a couple days before, people had been shouting him down as Lord and Messiah. I mean, he is well-loved. He's more popular than the Beatles at the height of their fame. If there's anywhere that Jesus would want to be to avoid arrest, it would be within the city limits. If he's going to be arrested, like, he would want if he wants to avoid being arrested, he would want to be in the crowd. He would want to be like in that upper room. That would have been the safe space. Because everybody else would have heard it. Everybody else would have like rallied to his attention. And yet he leaves the safety of the city. 
He crosses, to use your mental map for a second, he goes to the northeast down this like 200-foot valley that when flooded could like actually create quite a torrent. And some have even pointed out that at this particular season, because it's been estimated that 200,000 lambs would be slaughtered at a time during Passover, that that brook more than likely would have been running with the blood of slaughtered lambs at that particular time, doubtless recalling to Jesus His own sacrifice. He leaves in the moonlight, crosses the river, goes up the embankment of the Mount of Olives into what the text says is a garden. When you think of a garden, you typically think of some flowers or some plants, but what I want you to understand is that in that particular time and culture, uh, gardens were typically walled off spaces. Uh, they They were closed. They weren't open access. Normally, the wealthy actually had land outside the city so that they could enjoy the fresh air or produce grapes or olives or whatever. Here Jesus is actually going to the Mount of Olives and to a garden that the other Gospels call Gethsemane, which means olive press. But what I want you to note is that he actually goes into a garden. The, the preposition's pretty graphic. This would have been a decently safe space, and this was a space that Jesus himself would go to on multiple times through his ministry. Sometimes he would be teaching in Jerusalem, and the other Gospels who record that he would go out to the garden, and he would come back in and teach during the day. Uh, if you could think of it almost like your favorite campsite. It was a frequent place that Jesus would go to. Did he own the garden? Likely not. Somebody probably gave him the key and said, use it whenever you want to. Because the text actually makes clear that there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. But notice verse 2, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. How would Judas know the place? Because he'd been there. He knew that it was the habit of Jesus to actually leave and go spend the night in the countryside when he was ministering in the city. But Jesus couldn't make the two-mile track to Bethany, where his buddies lived, because that's outside the city limits. So the only other place that Jesus could possibly be on this particular night is in this particular garden. So Jesus goes, hang with me, Jesus goes to the one place on the planet where he could be easily arrested and where his betrayer would know where he's actually at. I want you to get what's going on here. This isn't um, Jesus playing some elusive game of hide and seek. He wants to be found. He, he's not on the lamb. He is in charge. The setting points to it. The statement he makes points to it as well. Look at verses 3 through 6. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Okay, catch this scene. Judas, the guy who had been with them the whole time, his his buddy, his comrade, the one that he even trusted with the money. Jesus has already sent him on his way. He said, look, what you do, do quickly. Go, go do your thing. 
And Judah secures a stinking army. Matthew actually describes it as a great multitude of people, but this text actually points to it as well. I don't know, at least in my mind, I'm thinking like, oh yeah, he's got a couple of officers, maybe there's a couple legal representatives. This is the way I've always read it. Like, There's probably six to ten people coming to get Jesus. <laughs> I want you to look at the, the word in your Bibles. Having procured a band of soldiers, the, the Greek word for band of soldiers uh, describes a Roman legion. Technically, a legion could be a thousand. Realistically, they never had a thousand people in them. Typically, what we see in history is that a legion would consist of 600 soldiers about. There's been a few instances in which there were as few as 200. So let's just be like, let's go with the lower end here. There's at least a couple hundred well-trained Jewish soldiers. By the way, these guys are called in at this time of year to be the riot police. They stayed in the fortress Antonia, which was like right outside of the temple itself, and they would call in reinforcements, Rome would, on Passover, because the, the population of Jerusalem would swell to like 2.5 million people. And they didn't want an uprising on their hands, and so these guys are battle-hardened veterans, and Judas has obviously spun such a case with the help of the, the priests and the Pharisees and the religious establishment to say, hey, there's a real threat on our hands, and look, there's 11 other of these guys, and like, they're going to stage a coup, and like, we've got to come out. And notice how they come out. It, they have the religious officials, Jews. They have the Roman soldiers, Gentiles. And they come with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, just to refresh your mind, like Old Testament, it's Passover. Passover had to take place on a full moon. So maybe it was a cloudy night, but here's what I'm thinking. Like, they're actually expecting Jesus to run. Like, the equivalent of a torch and a lantern is nothing different than us using floodlights and spotlights. Torch providing broad light, but lanterns were actually little focused lights that had a reflective surface on them and that were closed on the other sides to project what we would normally think of as a flashlight. This is, this is a, a search and destroy operation. Hence the weapons. <laughs> and so Jesus could naturally see these guys coming with their torches and lanterns from the fortress Antonia, Across this valley that he just made it across. And, and I want you to note like what he does next. This is he's not hiding, he's not scared. Look at verse 4. It says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, fully aware of what's going down, came forward. When you go back to chapter 18, verse 1, he went out with his disciples. Notice that. Now look at verse 4. Came forward, went out, came forward. Same word. Same word. He went out of the city. Hang with the prepositions for a second. He went out. Here, He went out of the garden. 
So here he is in a walled garden with his disciples, like he has a modicum of safety, and like he opens the door to the thing, and he steps out to where they are with the disciples behind him and says, who are you looking for? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not perceiving in this instance that this is some kind of like cosmic accident. Like Jesus was having his private devotional time, and then all of a sudden he was surprised by the band of soldiers coming. He steps out in front of them, and he makes the statement, who are you looking for? And they say, and this is amazing because they're, they're Romans. They don't know what Jesus looks like. Probably at this point, Judas has come up and kissed him, but the soldiers can't even imagine. They can't even imagine that somebody would be so bold as to step out in front of them. Like, well, surely that's not the guy. This must be some other friend of his. So Jesus says, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. Full stop. Full stop. Your Bible puts he because it just makes sense in English. The Greek is ego eimi. We've seen it over and over again in the book of John. I am, I am. Jesus keeps answering that over and over and over. It goes back to Exodus 3.14. When Yahweh had revealed Himself, He says, I'm going to show you My name. You want to know My name? It's I am. The self-existent One. Like the One who exists in and of Himself. Jesus makes a statement that is intentionally provocative. Maybe they could have interpreted it as I am He. But I think it's a little bit of or a lot of bit, of a poke in the eye for those religious leaders. Once more, Jesus rubs it in their grubby little faces. I am who you're looking for. Now, lest you think that I'm over-reading the Greek, please pay attention in your text to what happens next. Something hard to explain is indicated in their response because it says, verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. Don't get the picture. We're talking 200 plus people. We're talking soldiers. And, and they step back like in, in fear, presumably, tripping over one another like a set of dominoes. All their gear, all their stuff, they're sitting on their butts. Like, how does that happen? Well, some people have tried to say, oh, well, this is just an accident. It was dark. I, I don't know what kind of soldiers Rome had, but like, I think Greek culture, Rome war. I think that they knew how to stand up. Ultimately, what seems to be going down here is either they've psyched themselves up because they know that this is the guy who's like ruling like wind and waves and creating matter out of nothing. And like they, they know that this is a powerful being. Like I can imagine the conversation on the march over. Like, have you heard what this guy's done? <laughs> you hear what he can do? I mean, the Romans were a superstitious lot. Like maybe they've already psyched themselves up to a degree that his boldness is actually what calls us in the fall. Or maybe, and John doesn't say this, but maybe it's just the power of God coming out. Because every other place in the Bible where somebody has a direct audience with God, what do they do? They fall to the ground. Something is happening here. 
Jesus has initiated it. He is not cowering in the back corner of the garden. He is up front. He makes the statement, this is who I am. And so, we see this setting and the statement, I am. Notice this third focus. Strategy. Jesus doesn't just leave it there with I am. I'm the guy you're looking for. Look at verse 7. So he asked them again. Notice that. Here they are trying to get up off the ground. And it's kind of like he's standing over the group saying, who are you looking for? And he gets kind of sarcastic. I've got teenagers. I know sarcasm. (laughs) Notice the sarcasm. I love this. Whom do you seek? And they're saying as they're getting up, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am He. So if you seek me, let these men go. He's literally bossing them around. Like they're the authorities, but he's the authority. But there's a strategy here. There's a stra- Jesus is doing something really intentional. I, I don't want you to miss it. One person put it this way. It's a good explanation. explanation. Jesus' method was obvious. He asked the cohort twice whom they were looking for, and twice they verbalized Jesus of Nazareth. That narrowed their focus. And Christ also punctuated his question by sending the soldiers sprawling to the ground. The end result was to make his suggestion to let the disciples go seem quite reasonable. (laughs) The strategy here is arrest me, not them. I'm the one you're looking for. I mean, naturally, they would have been assuming that the other guys would have been fighting. That's where everybody was armed. And Jesus makes it clear, these guys, they, they don't have anything to do with this. You're looking for me. Who are you looking for? Who's on the arrest warrant? Read me the name. He's not going to let this turn into some big old clubbing in the night and then taking everybody off to prison. He's saying, I'm the focal point. I'm the one you're looking for. Let these guys go. And John picks up on that. He remembers it. And do you see what he adds to his narrative? Check it out in your copy of God's Word. It says in verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that He, Jesus, had spoken of those whom you gave Me. I have lost not one. They remembered that. They remembered that Jesus said, I'm not going to let anything happen to you that will ultimately undermine your faith. Could you imagine what would have happened to these guys if they would have been brought into custody and beat to a pulp like he was? They were struggling with the reality that he was going to be just hypothetically crucified, much less their own crucifixion. In fact, it says back in John chapter 11, before they go to Bethany, remember before the raising of Lazarus? They were scared to go, and ultimately, like they're trying to talk them out of it. They're like, don't go to Bethany, don't go to Bethany, please don't go to Bethany. And then they finally give up and say, okay, well, we're going to just go die with them anyway. They didn't want to die. They wouldn't have been able to handle it. 
And despite Peter's big mouth, they still couldn't handle it. Like they, like they would not have been prepared for that. And so Jesus says, they, they will not suffer this way. And this is in alignment with everything Jesus has told them. Think back to John 6.39. This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Or even more clearly, John 10.27-28, where Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. But it gets even more clear. Remember in that prayer we spent multiple weeks on? Jesus said in verse 12, to the Father. While I was with them, talking about the disciples, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Catch this, friends. Through this strategy, we see that their security is an accomplished fact, not just the good intentions of Jesus meek and mild. The point is, the strategy is him sacrificing himself for their security. He's being belligerent almost. He's throwing himself out there so that no one else would be implicated. Don't worry, I have application for us in the end, but I can't help but say here, that the security of God's people has been and will forever be the prerogative of God and not the people. God will not test you beyond what you can bear. He will not put you in circumstances that will ultimately undermine your faith. He's never lost a one. MacArthur said it this way, Jesus will pray and protect you into heaven. That's good news, friends. I think we, we, our view of the gospel is so frail that many of us erroneously believe that this whole salvation endeavor is like God than us. Which is way different than what the Scriptures teach. God in us. You see the difference between the two? Or maybe some of you think God plus us. God then us is, all right, Jesus does the saving, and then i got to work really hard to keep this thing going. God then us. Then God did his part, now you do your part. Or God plus us is, all right, um, I'm going to do my part, God's going to do his part, we're splitting this thing 50-50. What a terrible way to live. What the text is actually showing is that their security had nothing to do with them. You know what their only job in that moment was to do? To shut up. To sit there Shut up. Let the man do what he's trying to do. He's literally stepping out saying, arrest me. 
He's been telling them over and over and over again, like, I'm going to die for you. Like, I'm going to accomplish this on your behalf. He doesn't tell them that they're going to do anything for their redemption. And so the, the point is, like, when I'm looking at these various foci, like whether it be the setting or the statement or this strategy to put himself between the soldiers and the disciples, like, I don't know. I'm just thinking that Wells may have been a little off. I think Schweitzer misread this one, despite all his brilliance. I'm not seeing much of much a tragedy here. But there's a few more verses, so let's just see if it turns around the other way. There's one more thing that we can focus on, and that is his steadfastness. His steadfastness. Now, um, at this point, friends... <laughs> I think we should be pretty clear that Jesus has got this. Like, he's got it. But, um, yeah, then, then comes Peter. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> like, what is he thinking? Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. There's 600 plus armed guards. Jesus is trying to get arrested. And Peter tries to stop. <laughs> like our primal instincts kind of rejoice with Peter. Like, yeah, good way to go, Peter. But do you realize, like, he could have derailed the eternal plan of redemption? <laughs> He's, he's working against the salvation that Jesus is actually trying to offer. Calvin comments, No thanks to him, Peter, that Christ was not kept from death and that his name was not a perpetual disgrace. Could you imagine that? Imagine reading that in the Gospel of John. Well, Jesus tried to die, but Peter stopped him and we're all stuck. So, so what was he thinking? I don't know. I, I think that there would be part of it is his insecurity. I'm not going to go hyper-psychological on you, but Peter obviously has some issues. He's, he's making up for something. Like, he's always throwing himself out there. And I think when he tells Jesus that I'm going to die for you, like, I'm going to be your protector. I know you said you're the shepherd of the sheep, but I'm going to shepherd with you. I'm going to keep you safe. Like, and when Jesus says, no, you're not, you're actually going to deny me three times, I think Peter's got something to prove here. And I think he's ready to act. I mean, it accords with his habitual impetuousness. You see that all throughout the other Gospels. But I think there's another thing going on. I don't think it's just Peter's like, you know, making up for his personal inadequacies. I also think that he still vehemently disagrees with the plan of God. Remember, Peter was the one that actually took Jesus aside and said, hey, let me tell you something. This ain't happening. You're not going to die. You remember what Jesus told him? Get behind me, Satan. The disciples, as much as Jesus has tried to tell them, they're, like, they're still struggling. And so they naturally resist this, this plan. And so Peter, 
just overcome with emotion, like actually takes his short sword, that's the Greek word, short sword, like out of his belt, and like, I don't know how this works. I've tried to replay the scenario. I thought about getting a kid to stand in front of me this week so I could play out the different slicing scenarios. The only thing that I can imagine, there's two options, and I don't want to be too creative here, but the most obvious one is that he's just trying to take the guy's head out. And that he ducks, obviously, and he he slices off his ear. The other option is actually that Peter meant to cut off only his ear. To make a statement to the high priest. This actually has some warrant because, like, in Jewish culture, like, the body parts on the right side were considered more valuable. And this is the high priest's servant. Why does John tell us that? This is, this is his personal assistant, the executive assistant to the most powerful Jewish man in Jerusalem, like under Rome. And like he's going to send a message, like he can't report to you anymore. That's all his little sword could do. I don't know. But I will say this, it is the exact opposite of what Jesus wanted them to do. It is the exact opposite. I mean, thankfully, we know from other gospel accounts that Jesus will remedy this situation pretty quickly by picking up the guy's ear and putting it back on and healing him. But notice that John doesn't mention that. He's actually not interested in seeing the compassion of Jesus here. He just wants you to know that Jesus is in charge. And so what's the next thing that we read in our text? So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Like, you think you're going to hack your way through to some kind of salvation? Absolutely not. Here's what's going to happen, Peter. You put your sword away, and I'm going to drink the cup that the Father has given me. Now, here's the question for all of us 21st century listeners. What's the cup? You know, you know the prayer, like, let this cup pass from me. And you, you can kind of get the idea and read between the lines, but... I want to help you, brothers and sisters, understand exactly what Jesus is saying in this moment. The cup is a symbol steeped in Old Testament imagery. Every single one of those Jewish men surrounding them would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said this. The cup served as a figure of speech for the wrath of God forcibly served to the wicked. The cup in the Old Testament was a figure of speech for the wrath of God forcibly served to the wicked. Listen to Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7. There God says to the prideful and wicked, It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup foaming with wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. I don't have time to read it all for you, but let me summarize the other place where this cup metaphor stands out so prominently. It's in Jeremiah 25, verses 15 to 38. And there, and I'm going to read here because I I worked hard to summarize He prophesies of a cup of the wine of wrath which certain nations will be forced to drink. 
And listen to this. This is what happens when they drink it. They stagger and will be crazed. They'll go crazy because of the sword that the Lord God of Israel is sending among them. Later on in that passage, he describes what happens when they drink it as them being made a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse. This cup would also make them drunk. It would make them vomit. It made them fall and rise no more. In other words, it was a symbol for divine punishment, God's indictment, a declaration of international disaster, a cosmic storm. I'm using all biblical words here. All who drink it will not be honored in death, but will be like, and I'm quoting again, dung on the surface of the ground. It's the fierce anger of the Lord, like that of a lion who has left its lair. Friends, that's not me being poetically cute. That's the biblical description of the cup of God. It's His wrath that will be served to the nations. And here's how I would summarize for us. It's a metaphor for the terrible fate of the wicked, the imbibing of the unadulterated wrath of God. The cup represents the imbibing, the taking in of the unadulterated wrath of God. Can you imagine that? Have you ever seen somebody like so fiercely angry that it just scared the life out of you? Maybe you thought it was for something stupid. Maybe you thought it was for something appropriate. But normally, wrath is provoked for a particular reason. Something went wrong. God, friends, has wrath and He will express it. And His wrath is right And He will, as is said in the Old Testament, let it out. He's going to pour it all out. He's going to force someone to drink this wrath on account of the high cost of rebellion and treason against Him. And Jesus here in this moment says, Peter, put down your sword. It is totally up to me to satisfy the full weight of the wrath of God. I will absorb it. That's what I'm here to do. Do not stop me. He's steadfast. He's determined. And from this moment on, from this moment on in the Gospel of John, all the way up to His burial, He will imbibe the unadulterated wrath of God. And so verse 12 reads, The band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound Him. First they led Him to Annas, for He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Jesus wasn't just being arrested. He was arranging His arrest unto death itself. So the natural question for us as we conclude this story is, who arrested whom? Who arrested whom? Was this the Jews and Romans arresting Jesus? Or is this Jesus orchestrating things so that He Himself would be arrested and die on behalf of His people? 
Is this the great tragedy or is this some kind of a triumph? I quote Schweitzer again. He goes with tragedy. He uses this graphic phrase. He says that wheel that crushed him, that crushed Jesus, rolls onward and the mangled body is hanging upon it still. That is his victory and reign. The great cosmic accident. But I don't think, friends, this is hardly the stage coming down with the director. It sounds like he steered the ship right to where he wanted it. This, what we see here is a a determination to die for our deliverance. That's what this passage is about. A determination of our Lord to die for our deliverance. It's in the setting. It's in the statement. It's in the strategy. It's in His steadfastness. This thing bleeds with intentionality. Which leads us with two lessons. And we're done. One, He did it, not us. He did it, not us. Friends, let's work this through our thick skulls, mine included. God the Son is the only one who could ever satisfy the wrath of God the Father. Can I illustrate that with a little bit of logic? A divine debt can only be reconciled through a divine deposit. Human deposits don't satisfy divine debts. So God the Son entered into human form so that He could pay a divine deposit on our behalf. And in fact, uh, what he tells us here through this interchange with Peter in particular is um, it's kind and it's bold, but he's like, just get out of the way. Get out of the way. He did it, not us. This was his mission. He would satisfy it fully. I think we are so much like Peter so often. One uh, pastor put it this way. I thought it was helpful. He says, just like us to try to hack our way through the world even when Jesus stands to protect us. We're just like Peter. We want to make our contribution to the plan. We think that we've got something to offer. And yet, uh, it's a little worse than just bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's more like bringing a water pistol to a forest fire. You're not just not doing anything. You're getting in the way. Like Jesus says, get out of the way. Shall I not drink the cup? This is not God, then us, God plus us. This is God and His Son for us. Hear me well, well well-meaning brothers and sisters and potential followers of Jesus. You do not clean yourself up or work out or pray down the righteousness of God. It is received through Jesus alone. You need no human priest or personal penance or public rituals. You need Jesus alone. You need no prayer or alms or fasting or pilgrimage in light of your comments earlier about Islam. You need Jesus alone. 
get out of the way. Just get out of the way. Like, let him do his things. He's, he's already done it. Do you remember the old hymn? I love this. We, we should sing this like weekly. It just comes to mind. Thank God it comes to mind at the right times for me. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Everybody's like, amen and amen. It gets better. Because Top Lady knew that we'd be like, oh, that's cute, and we'd move on to our stuff. So then he adds another verse to help us stick to it a little more. And here's the second one. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. He did it, not us. Second lesson. He did it for us. He did it for us. He was the pure lamb without spot or blemish. Forever in heaven and earth, he enjoyed the favor of his father, and yet he would imbibe divine wrath. That doesn't even make any sense. Why? Did he get caught and mangled in the gears of the universe? Absolutely not. Jesus already said this would happen in John 10, 17 to 18. Just hear it with fresh ears. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I, <laughs> I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is the charge I have received from my Father. This was the grand plan of redemption from the very beginning, that He would lay down His life for His sheep. For His sheep! Say, so, what are sheep? Sheep are, are rather uh, dirty and dumb animals. Sorry, no ego points today. They, they bite, they limp, they fight, they flee, they get sick. And yet Jesus died for his sheep. I love that way that Paul puts it in Romans. I can't recall exactly, but he's like, like for a good man, some would even dare to die. But basically, like, who dies for an unrighteous person? Like, Jesus died for, like, straying, sinful, suffering, sickly sheep. Us! By the way, that's who he died for. The straying, the sinful, the suffering, the sickly. Not the self-righteous. You are in here today and you think you've got it made in the shade because you're such a good moral person. You give to things and you're respected in the community. He didn't die for you. He died for his people, and his people are those who are broken and weary and ruined by sin, and they know their need for him. That's just been a stunning revelation. Give me a second to riff. Like, stunning revelation in Bible reading of late. Is I've been having this debate in light of all these books coming out that are focusing on the tenderness of Jesus, and I'm like, is this just our therapeutic self-age? Like, why is everybody focusing on Jesus' tenderness? Like, whatever happened to focusing on Jesus' toughness? And I realized something. Jesus is tough and terrible to the self-righteous. 
but he is always tender and compassionate to sinners and sufferers. Do you suffer? Do you struggle with sin? He died for you. His death was our life. I love these lines from George Herbert's The Agony. Who knows not love, let him assay, and taste that juice which on the cross a pike did set abroad, then let him say, if ever he did taste the like, love is that liquor sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. He died for you. It was death to God. It was life to you. So how do you know? How do you know that leads to life? Because he rose again. <laughs> like God obviously accepted his payment. He rose again. He was vindicated. He was shown to be in the right. Friends, he, di- he dies for his sheep. Not the secularist who thinks that he's going to work everything out on his own. Not for the self-righteous religious fanatic who relies on his own efforts or spiritual rituals. But the sheep... The weak ones, the frail ones, the ones who need a shepherd, that's who he dies for. The ones who break out their sword when they're not supposed to and potentially mess everything up. The ones who get in the way. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't say when Peter did that? Okay, never mind. Peter still blows it, and Jesus still bound and submits to those authorities. You know what the other gospel writers say? This is actually interesting. Some of us can be impetuous like Peter. Some of us just want the easy life. The rest of them ran away at this point. One of them even somehow losing his clothes, like butt naked, running away. <laughs> Some of you are like, man, I'm not like Peter. It's not me not trying to fight. I'm just trying to get out of here. And, you know, I just want to be safe. He died for those people too. I think it's a pretty simple lesson. Is it a tragedy or a triumph? It's a triumph. He did it. He did it. He did it, not us. He did it. He did it. He did it for us. The only thing I think we could do to close is say, Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray and then praise Him in that way. Father, our hearts are full. We're full as we just take in the stunning beauty of the determination of our Lord to die for us. Overwhelm us in fresh ways with Your grace. May it motivate us to new expressions of obedience. And I pray that it would break the heart of some who persist in either sinful rebellion or self-righteousness. May today be the day that they come to know this God who has loved them to the degree that He would send His Son to die and suffer in their place and rise again so that they may have eternal life. May the preaching of the cross produce life 
and those who do not have it, may it propagate life in those of us who do. Honor yourself through our praise now in song and then in our closing reception uh, to receive new members into this fellowship that is all about this Jesus who died for us. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.